0: The scripture tonight comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 34. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets, And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, "'What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God.'" I pray that by your
1: spirit and through your word, you would speak to each of us. Because the last thing that any person in this room needs tonight is to hear from me. We are here to hear from you, our God, our Father, our Maker, and our Redeemer. So by your spirit, speak to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I love asking little kids what they want to be when they grow up right? Anybody ever do this? You get some pretty awesome answers when you ask little kids. So I've got three kids. I've got Sarah. She's four. Ezra is two and Amos is five months. And on Sunday night, I asked the oldest two what they wanted to be when they grow up. And Sarah gave me kind of this look like, you should know this by now, dad. She said, I want to be a princess. She was wearing her Elsa princess costume. So yes, I should have known. And if you were drawing up a list, it was like a caricature of what you thought every four year old girl would like. My daughter would check off liver, literally every single box. I mean, this morning before I left our house, she was coloring in her frozen coloring book with a shocking pink crayon. And then she asked me where her tiara was. Now, Ezra, when I asked him the same question, he looks at me and goes, A fox. Wait, a minion. I didn't have the heart to tell him, you know, sorry, buddy. I don't think this is going to work out for you. It's going to be pretty difficult for you to become a fictional cartoon character. Uh, But when I was little, I had a dream that was only slightly less ridiculous than my kids. I wanted to be the opening day starting pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. Now, something you guys may not know about me, uh, when I was in seventh grade, Uh, one of my neighbors was coaching a football team and he asked me to be a part of it. Now, the reason he asked me to be a part of his football team is that it was mostly consisted of fourth graders and I still made the weight limit. So the odds of me becoming a professional baseball player were pretty slim. I was kind of your stereotypical kids adventure movie uh, guy, you know, red hair, glasses, pretty good at math and science, the guy that nobody really... Anyway, you guys get the picture. All of that to say, my effort generally exceeded my talent, okay? Um, but there was this picture for the Braves when I was growing up named Greg Maddox. And Greg Maddox doesn't look like your stereotypical jock, right? In fact, his nickname was the professor because he looked like he should be teaching you high school math. But instead, what he was doing is he was outsmarting every batter that he came across and he made these steroid juice baseball players in the 90s cry like little girls. And I knew all about Greg Maddox, okay? I knew that he was born in Texas in 1966, that he grew up in Las Vegas, that when scouts eventually saw him, it was only because they actually came to scout his older brother, uh, that he was the first guy to ever win four Cy Youngs in a row. And Cy Young is the award for being the best pitcher in your league. I mean, I could go on, okay? I'll spare you. Suffice it to say, I knew a ton about this guy. I talked about him like I knew him. And judging by how much I knew, you might have thought that I did. So one July, my family and I, we take this trip down to Disney World. And while I was standing in the line at Epcot, I passed this guy and I I said to my dad, that's Greg Maddox." My dad's like, Greg Maddox doesn't wait in lines, little boy. There's no way that's Greg Maddox. I said, no, I've seen this guy's face a 100 million times. I have all of his baseball cards. We watch him on TV every fifth day. That's Greg Maddox. And he's like, whatever, go ask him. So I take my little Epcot map and I walk up to this guy. He's got his hat pulled down low. And I look up at him and I say, are you Greg Maddox? And he looks around and he says, Yes, but don't you dare tell anyone. (laughs) And my mouth drops open. I hand him my little map and he signs it. I don't think I say a single word to him. I'm sure that I didn't say thank you. My jaw was just on the floor and I walked back. I was probably in silence the rest of that day. But as you guys can probably guess, I was not silent once I made it back to school the next fall, right? I mean, I had met my freaking hero. I was going to tell every single person that I knew about this. Hey, Kevin, guess what? I met Greg Maddox over the summer. What'd you do? Yeah, awesome, cool. I was so excited about meeting my hero that I couldn't contain myself. But as you'd probably guess, my excitement eventually wore off. Why? It was just a one-time deal. I met him one time. We didn't have a relationship. We weren't friends. I was like a lot of people in Atlanta in the 90s. I had a lot of positive feelings about Greg Maddox. I knew a lot about Greg Maddox. I had even had an encounter with Greg Maddox. But we didn't have a relationship. And especially in the American South, most everyone that you know knows some things about Jesus, They generally have positive things to say about the person of Jesus. Lots of people have even had meaningful encounters with him. But when it comes down to it, there's an awful lot of people who maybe know a lot about Jesus, maybe had some awesome experience at a retreat or a church when they were growing up, but maybe they don't actually have a relationship with him. And in order to get ready for the sermon, I watched a lot of videos of people on the street being asked about who they thought Jesus was and what he came to do. And people said things like, he's love, he's hope, he's an inspiration. He tried to impart wisdom and make the world a better place. And I love the way a guy named Ben Stewart, I think I mentioned him last time, Ben Stewart, Tim Keller, N.T. Wright have been instrumental for me in thinking about the gospel of Mark. But Ben Stewart said, everybody wants to connect with Jesus. Everyone says, oh yeah, I know Jesus. But generally, it's a Jesus they're sort of filling in the blanks with out of their own head. And it's a Jesus they want to connect with, but a Jesus they want to connect with only on their own terms, end quote. So a lot of people have a Jesus that looks a little bit like the Jesus in the Bible, right? He shares some characteristics, but they might pull some out and maybe add a few more ends. In other words, they have a Jesus of their own making. And a Jesus of their own making isn't a real person. And you cannot have a relationship with a person that doesn't exist. You can't have a relationship only on your terms, and you can't have a relationship without some self-disclosure. So who is Jesus really? That's the question that we're wrestling with this semester in the first eight chapters of Mark. How does Jesus disclose himself? Well, two weeks ago, if you guys were here, if you listened, we took a, uh, a look at Jesus and his baptism. And we talked about how this was kind of the coronation. This was the arrival of the humble king. And after his coronation, Jesus hits the ground running in fact most of our passage verses 21 to 34 it's really one extremely busy day Jesus is on a mission Jesus wants you and me to know something about himself something that I really hope and pray that you don't miss because it's something that you have to know and understand in order to have a relationship with him Jesus is the king and the king comes with authority And as I watched those street interviews, kind of knowing what I was going to talk about tonight, I noticed that not a single person referred to Jesus as the king or talked about his authority. And, you know, to be fair, I don't think I would have done it either. And yet it seems like it's the very first thing that Jesus wanted to be known about himself as he starts his ministry. So tonight we're going to wrestle with three questions. What does Jesus have authority over? What is the source of Jesus' authority? And we're going to look at both of those questions together. And what does this mean for us? What does Jesus have authority over? What's the source of Jesus' authority? And what does this mean for us? Let's look back at verse 16. So passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So the first thing that we see here is Jesus calling his first four disciples. Now, what's really interesting about this is that in this day, rabbis didn't call their disciples. If you wanted to learn more about the scriptures, You found a rabbi that you liked listening to and you said, hey, I'm going to follow you for a little while. But Jesus does something radically different here. He points out four men. He says, you come follow me. Not only that, but disciples tended to learn from rabbis kind of in their spare time. They didn't leave their jobs. But Jesus is saying, if you really want to learn from me, if you want to know what this kingdom is going to be about, you're going to have to rearrange all of your priorities, then come and follow me. And if you look at verse 20, it shows us that James and John, they're, they're part of the family business, right? So they're dads of fishermen. And in this culture... If your dad was a fisherman, there's a pretty good chance that your granddad was a fisherman and your granddad's dad and your granddad's dad's dad and on and on and on. Probably every single person that you had ever known in your family had been part of the same family business. And I don't want you to miss this, okay? Because Jesus is not only calling them to set aside their careers to carry out his mission, but in a culture where family was everything, Jesus was asking these men to give him the greatest priority in their lives. Jesus is saying to the disciples in this moment, I want you to leave everything you've ever known. I want you to set aside your security and your income, what your family thinks about you and your future and follow me into absolute uncertainty. You have to trust me radically. And I've got a mission for you. What's amazing is that when Jesus speaks with authority to these men, they respond immediately. Verse 18 says, And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, they don't ask some things that we would think would be perfectly reasonable, right? Like, hey, Jesus, where are we going? "Uh, Jesus, what do you want me to tell my dad? "Uh, Jesus, can I find some guy to cover my shifts on the boat while I'm gone? Um, maybe a big one in our culture. Hey, Jesus, if I, how long is this going to take? I'm, I'm kind of dating this girl. I'd really love to see how this goes. What are the next few weeks, months, years going to look like for me? No, Jesus says, come and follow me. And these guys, listen, whatever had been primary in their lives suddenly became secondary because they saw him. Let's pick back up in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his, at, at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. You see, the scribes in this day, they would build their arguments by quoting scripture or by quoting something called the Talmud, which is basically all of the best teachers throughout Jewish history. They would build their arguments by quoting the past. Even the prophet, prophets of the Bible, how did they speak? They said, thus says God. But then this guy, Jesus, comes on the scene. I feel like I need to remind you of this for a second. Jesus grew up in this area. He probably knew most of these guys his whole life. They knew that he was the son of the carpenter who until this moment had probably spent most of his life in the family business. He hadn't been trained in the same schools that most of these scribes had. And his teaching is categorically different from anybody else's. And the people are astonished by it because Jesus doesn't quote some respected authority. He says things like, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Not only that, Jesus says crazy things like this in John 1. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And Jesus says things like this all the time in the Gospels. And the word truly here, I don't know if you know this, it means amen. He is saying amen and amen. Okay, now. When people in a synagogue heard someone teaching and they heard something that they liked or something that they agreed with, they would voice out just like we sometimes do in church, amen, that's true, that's right, I agree with that. But what Jesus is saying here by starting his points in his sermon by saying this is true, he's saying you don't have a right to sit and judge whether or not what I'm saying is true. This is the foundational truth of the entire universe, and you're going to have to deal with it. He teaches as one with authority. Who in the world does Jesus think that he is? I don't know about you guys, um, but I've always been a tremendous Christopher Nolan fan. Can I get an amen for that? Right? Christopher Nolan, in case you guys don't know, where have you been? Uh, He wrote movies like uh, Memento, Interstellar, and my favorite, The Prestige. I remember seeing that with a couple of my friends and being so blown away by the ending that we drove immediately to Waffle House and we sat for the next several hours just trying to figure out what the ending of the movie meant. And Nolan's movies, they do that a lot, right? I mean, what actually happens at the end of The Dark Knight Rises? Who does Alfred actually see? You think you know, but you don't. And that's the point. (laughs) Interstellar, what happens to Matthew McConaughey? Does Leonardo DiCaprio's top stop spinning or does it keep going? Oh man. What would have changed about that conversation at Waffle House that day if Christopher Nolan himself had shown up? He could have sat down at the table with us and said, Yeah, guys, that's right. Oh, no, no, no. You totally missed it there. Oh, 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 I was really proud of this. Did you guys catch this? And we would have sat there in absolute awed silence listening to him explain these things. And whatever opinions and beliefs that we had before we came in, they were now subject to the truth because the author himself was there eating an all-star special. So who does Jesus think that he is? He's teaching them and he's talking like he's the author of everything that there is. And the people are astonished. Let's pick back up in verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. Now imagine this, because this is awesome. Imagine Jesus is preaching and then busting through the doors comes some horror movie looking dude screeching at him. And Jesus doesn't say a few magic words, right? He doesn't pull out of his back pocket how to survive a demonic attack. No, there's, there's one thing that he says. He says, sit down, be humble. Is that fair? Can I use that? The spirit here, I'm sorry, that was terrible. I just, I felt like, this is incredibly important, okay? The Bible tells us that there are real spiritual powers of darkness out there, and they're incredibly powerful. But Jesus commands the unclean spirit to leave, and the unclean spirit, it doesn't make an argument. It doesn't put up a fight because it doesn't stand a chance against Jesus. Jesus isn't just in authority over people. He's not just in authority over God's word. He's authority over every spiritual force. This spirit who hates Jesus hears his voice and immediately obeys. Jesus walks around like he owns the place and people don't know what to do with him. Now, uh, Ezra, my two-year-old, This past weekend, he just started the beginning phases of potty training. Uh, And part of his reward is that he gets to wear his brand new superhero underwear. He was super fired up about it. He was running around my house, mostly naked, this weekend, screaming, I'm Superman or I'm Batman. And what I love about Batman is that Batman is Bruce Wayne. And what I mean by that, is that Bruce Wayne is just some guy who doesn't have superpowers, unless you count super wealth, which, point taken. He sees unbelievable evil and injustice in the world, right? And he decides, no matter what happens, I'm going to take everything that I have and all that I am, and I'm going to leverage that to defend those who cannot defend themselves. And I pray the very same thing for my boys, that they would be men like Batman, (laughs) But in order to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves, he dresses up like a bat, right? He disguises himself. He becomes Batman. But what's interesting about Superman is that his disguise is Clark Kent. While Batman dresses up to mask his weakness, Superman dresses up to disguise his strength. Remember, Jesus just grew up down the road in Nazareth, right? They knew this guy, but it's like all of a sudden he's taken his glasses off. A cape is showing a little bit and all of this power that had been there, but hidden for all of his life is now on full display. And these people were, verse 27 tells us, amazed. But this Greek word, thombeo, it actually means astonished, terrified, or stupefied. And sometimes we can look back into history and think, yeah, well, these people were just a little bit more gullible. They believed a little bit more in the supernatural than we do. But these people don't have a category for what Jesus is doing either. They look at him and they don't understand who he is at all. But thanks to Mark's introduction, we do. This is the humble king over everything. Jesus is king over people. He's king over God's word. He's king over the spiritual world. And as we see in the next couple of verses, he's king over the physical world as well. Picking up in verse 28. And at once his fame spread everywhere and throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at their door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And this should be a great comfort to us, right? Because I know that I'm probably not the only one who's had to experience somebody in our family suffering under cancer or some other debilitating disease. And what these verses say is that Jesus can heal it in an instant. It's not hard for him. It doesn't even take him lifting his finger. But he enters into this room with such compassion, and he hears the pleading of his people, and he responds. He doesn't always do this, but he can. And this whole city, they're gathered at the door, but why do they come? Because Jesus is doing some amazing things. And some of them, as you can imagine, they they come to see a show. They want to be entertained. They want to figure out what all the fuss is about. And some of these people, they come with real problems and real needs, and they know that this guy, he can probably do something about it. He can fix this. But both, almost everyone in the crowd sees Jesus as a means to an end. There's not a lot of people at this point who are falling down on his feet and calling him Lord. And I need you to know something. Believing that Jesus is powerful, it's not enough. Knowing a lot about Jesus, liking Jesus, it's not enough. I mean, the evil spirit here, it spoke theologically true and precise things about who Jesus is. What you need, what I need is a relationship And you can't have a relationship on your own terms. A lot of us, I think, like to acknowledge that Jesus is God. And we're really glad that Jesus loves us enough to come and die for our sins. But when push comes to shove, we tend to do what we want to do. We don't want a king over our lives like Caleb was talking about. We want to become king in his place. But what does it mean to know Jesus? To have a relationship with Jesus? I mean, remember the disciples here. When Jesus called, they dropped their nets and left their families, their job, and their security behind. Whatever was primary suddenly became secondary because they recognized that Jesus was the king. And our call to discipleship, to follow Jesus, may not literally involve abandoning our previous lives and dreams. But what it does mean is we recognize that everything that we have From here on out, it's at his disposal. He is free to do with it whatever he chooses because Jesus will not be a means to an end. You can't come to Jesus for anything other than a relationship with himself. In your life, either Jesus will be king and Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And unless you know Jesus as Lord and king, you don't know him. You don't have a relationship with him. And I want to quote This lady named Rebecca Pippert, and this comes out of your Mark guide. Uh, One of the reasons I would greatly encourage you to read it. Listen closely to these words. What does it mean, then, to allow Jesus to be Lord of our lives? Just this. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. If Jesus is our Lord, then he is the one who controls. He has ultimate power. There are no bargains. We cannot manipulate him by playing. Let's make a deal. If he is Lord, the only option open to us is to do his will to let him have control. Of course, Jesus remains, Lord, whether we accept him or not. His lordship, his essence is not affected by what we choose, but our lives are drastically changed by our choice. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to wrestle with what is it that you need to lay down and surrender? What is holding you back from the depths of joy and peace that is found in knowing and falling at Jesus' feet and surrendering to him as king? something or someone is going to rule your life. And I don't think I can put it any better than the way that Tim Keller did. Why not follow the only king who will not crush you, but instead was crushed for you? He laid down everything that he might have you to rescue you, to bring you into his family, to have you be a part of this kingdom that he is building, a kingdom of perfect peace, of perfect justice, of perfect love where you will be with him in perfect satisfaction forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant that the words that we have just heard with our ears may by your grace come into our hearts and bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. And I pray that you would help us to bring our hearts as an offering to you, the great and mighty King who loved us enough to lay aside all your rights that you might have us. To Jesus be glory and honor forever and ever, we pray. Amen.